can be seated. Thank you, Christy, for leading us in time of song and time of worship today. Thankfully, my friend is gone. He's no longer talking back to me. So I prayed the whole time, Lord, let my friend be gone. <laughs> Just a lot of little things today that sometimes uh, can distract us. And so um, I do believe that as we've gone through the first week in this series of Redefined, um, it's interesting that today is now called a focused people. And uh, it's like we've been thrown into this idea or this opportunity for distraction, but we're going to zone in and focus. And so we are in a series, if you're new with us, that just started last week called Redefined, and it's based on a book by Arden Bevere. There are copies of the book and the reading plan available for you if you want to purchase them or pick them up out in the, the lobby after. And last week we talked about the power of a word, and the whole premise of this series is about learning to allow God's perspective to shape the way we view ourselves and the way we view other people. And we finished up a series that we were in for a long time called Trust the Story. And the point of Trust the Story was learning to understand the Bible as a complete book. Um, you, I hope you understand that the Bible was not written with chapters. It was not written with verses. It was not written um, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, in, in ways, it wasn't even separated into books. There was no First Kings, Second Kings. It's just they ran out of room on a scroll, so they just continued the book. And we have documented, and we've, we've done that later on in church history to make it easily accessible to us. So that when I get up here and say, hey, Matthew chapter uh, 19, verse 13, so you know where to turn to. And so we've made it easier. But in a way, it's allowed us to pull parts of it out and maybe use them in ways that the whole story of the scripture uh, it really doesn't jive with. And so... When we talked about understanding the narrative of Scripture, it's important that we understand the plan that God has had for the world from beginning to end. And nothing is going to stop that end from coming. Nothing is going to get in the way of what God has in mind for the earth. His will will be accomplished. And that should give us a sense of hope, a sense of peace, and a sense of stability even when everything around us seems to be unstable in a book by warren smith and john stone street it's called restoring all things they tell us this so the bible is not or not merely a book about how to have a better life or how to handle life's problems it is a book that explains the universe and how god is in the process of redeeming and restoring it to its original good true and beautiful state see if we do not know the story we can't know our place in the story and i think a lot of the the problems that we have with focus that we're going to talk about today stem from the fact that we we don't remember the whole story we zero in on bits and pieces or fragments or we live these compartmentalized lives that cause us to get out of focus when arden begins the chapter this week he talks about being lost and he asked the question have you ever been lost and you know what kind of feelings and emotions do you have when you get lost and he even dives in a little bit to the idea of disorientation so you go into the woods and you just eventually realize oh I got turned around everything I don't I don't know where I am and so you don't initially know you're lost even 
when you were already lost to begin with. But at some point, when you realize it, the anxiety, the fear, and he tries to get us to, to sense this. And so when we are looking at the scripture, when we are looking at the call that God has put on our lives, uh, a lot of times that same thing begins to happen, where because we've misunderstood what God is doing in our world from beginning to end, we get disoriented and disoriented or we we get lost without even realizing we've been lost. Last week, we talked about the gospel. We talked about the the story that God has been telling from beginning to end, that we were created in the image of God. We were his representatives on the earth. We rebelled against him. When we did that, it brought sin. It brought decay. It brought but Jesus was crucified, Jesus was buried, Jesus was resurrected, and he, was, he actually went through that, if you will, before the beginning of time. So it wasn't like God created the world, it didn't go as he planned, so then he came up with the plan to send his son to be crucified. No, it was all a part of the plan from the beginning, because it was the only way God could have a people that choose him. He doesn't want a people that just like robots follow him and do what he wants. He wants a people to partner with him to bring about his, his plan for the earth, to bring about a restoration on the planet for all people. And because of what Christ has done, we've been called into that partnership. However, as we've talked about in our American culture, we like to say salvation is about ABC. Admit you've sinned, believe in Jesus, and then confess or commit to following him. And that's, that's true. That's the, the gospel presentation. All of us have gone our own way. We've broken God's law. Jesus died as a penalty for us, a payment for us. And if we commit ourselves to him, we confess that he's Lord. Then we are brought into this partnership with God. The New Testament really makes that a lot simpler. It says repent and believe. Repent and believe. Now, we don't understand that word repent because it's a different kind of word for us, but it means turn. It means I was going my way, and so repentance doesn't mean uh, I, you know, I was going my way, and so I'm going to just alter my course ever so slightly and start adding some of the scriptures that I find because I'm, I'm going to cut up the scripture, and I'm just going to, okay, here's a good moral one that I should apply. And so I'm altering my course because I'm not going to be totally selfish. I'm going to go this way. But repent means turn around. It means everything that we were doing was about us, our way, our decisions. And God has called us to turn around and do things his way, his direction. Not if we feel like it, not if we agree. As Proverbs tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. So I might think, well, that was the way I was going. That's the way God wants me to go. But somewhere in between, I'll go that way. Because it looks right. I mean, it looks good. I'm applying most of the scripture to my life. But that ends in death. And God is saying, if you want to come my way, I love you. I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to come and beat you up. And I'm not just waiting for you to make wrong decisions. I'm telling you, this is the way to life. And as a loving father, as the creator of who we are, he would know best. And yet often we struggle to apply that in our daily lives. Repent and believe. Turn and focus. Focus on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. When we talk about this idea of salvation, we, we usually ask some questions. So, so, so here's a question. What are we saved from? I'm saved. Okay, great. What are you saved from? Well, we know we're saved from sin. We're saved from death. 
We're saved from hell. We're saved from bondage. We're saved from addiction. I mean, even though it sometimes takes a while for those things to work out in our lives, we know we're saved from them. Well, what are we saved to? What are we saved to? Well, we're saved to life. We're saved to peace. We're saved to Jesus. We're saved to heaven. But what are we saved for? I don't know if whenever, if you were, when you were a child, I wondered often, why when we got saved, didn't we just go to heaven? Wouldn't that be easier? I mean, because if everyone noticed that all these people were disappearing, they would get saved too. That seems like a way better plan because it seems like such a struggle at times to put these things into practice. I mean, even when I want to, the things I want to do, I know what Paul feels like. The things I want to do, ah, those aren't the things I do. And then the very things that I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm, really gonna, I'm not really going to do that. And then I end up doing it. I mean, who can set me free from this life? And I would think, man, let's just go, go have it. But that's not God's plan. Because God's plan was not to have a people in heaven with him. His plan was to have people on the earth who are his representatives. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus, living out God's original plan for the earth. And too many times in the church, I think we get lost. We lose focus because we're all about what happens next and we're not about what God wants us to do right now here on the earth. So what are we saved for? Well, primarily we're saved for a relationship with God. That's what we're saved for. An intimate connection with him that was not possible apart from the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and him sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming to live in us is that that's the whole point of the story so that we can now be connected to God. But we're also saved for the purpose of putting him on display in the world. However, <laughs> that second part can only flow out of the first part. And many times we get those out of order. We start focusing on the second part, making him known without the first part. Either we aren't connected to him at all, or we, you know, connect some of the day and then we disconnect some of the day, or we compartmentalize, we fragment. We're connected in some ways, but not in all of the ways. And too often, the church has made following Christ about doctrinal statements, about codes of conduct, about activities we can or cannot participate in, or activities we should participate in. And that's not the story at all. I mean, it is part of the story, but it's not the full story. Arden reminds us that we live in the age of information. Um, more information available to us today than at any other point in history. And of course, the danger of that is we all become experts. Everybody, of course, knows more than their doctor because, you know, we have WebMD and we can just Google stuff. And we all know more than um, people who have studied for years and gone to school and actually learned things. I mean, you can get, you don't even need an electrician anymore. You can just YouTube it and, you know, you can fix your own electrical stuff. But by the way, uh, you actually need it to be signed off by a certified electrician in order to be approved by city codes. So please make sure that sometimes when you do your own rewiring that you actually follow the codes of our city um, for your own safety that you don't burn your house down. But the information age also has come into the church. 
I mean, we have more Bibles, more translations of the Bibles, more books, more studies, more podcasts, more videos. We have more information on earth today about God, about Scripture, about the kingdom of God than we ever have in the history of the world. And yet it seems that we have less transformation than we ever have before. Because information alone doesn't guarantee transformation. Just because I know the details and the facts doesn't guarantee that I'm carrying them out in my lives. The Bible even warns us of this. If you hear the word, but you do not put it into practice, you deceive yourself. Meaning, you think because we know it, even if it's not showing up in my life, I deceive my heart into thinking I'm actually putting it into practice when I'm not. So in other words, I can conform outwardly, but yet be deceived inwardly. I can conform in some areas, but neglect other areas totally. And it's easy for us to start rationalizing, well, that we're better than that person, or, you know, the good in my life outweighs the bad, but that's not the point. Because behavior modification is not the goal of salvation. Total transformation from the inside out is the goal of of salvation. Restraining our behavior is not enough. I mean, restraining our behavior is good, but when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he kind of dissected this. You say, don't murder, and I don't murder anyone. Well, I don't murder anybody. Okay. Do you hate anyone? Well, hate's a strong word. Well, what are your social media posts like? What kind of terms do you use to describe other image bearers on the earth? I mean, it's easy for us to think, well, that's, you know, they they deserve it. Well, how did God treat you? I mean, every time God sees you, does he bring up your past? Every time you walk into the throne room, does he say, oh, here comes that gossip again. Oh, here comes that slanderer again. Or does he call you out of that? But see, when we treat one another certain ways, it's like, well, yeah, that one. Um, well, I know what they're like. Well, but Pastor Tom, that's what they're like. And yet so are we. And we have never been treated as our sins deserve. We've been called out of them. Jesus goes on and says, you know, you you don't commit adultery. I start thinking, well, I'm pretty good. I don't commit adultery. I don't murder anybody. I don't steal sums of money. But the question is, is that because I've been transformed from the inside out or just because I lack opportunity? I mean, behavior modification can fool us into thinking that we're being transformed, but we're not being transformed at all because we're only a fragmented part of the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom Totally. Total transformation is the goal. And the only way to get there, John chapter 15 talks about it, is with knowing him. We have to be connected to him. John 15 verses 4 and 5 says, remain in me and I will remain in you. That's Jesus. Remain in me. I will remain in you. No branch, that's us, can bear fruit by itself. In other words, produce the type of things that the kingdom is supposed to produce in our lives. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Our connection to him is what produces fruit in our lives. It's through our connection with Him that we bear fruit and then represent Him on the earth. 
It's through our connection with Him that we are called into being a part of restoring His original plan for the earth. But what we're tempted to do is focus on the bearing fruit part. And so then we try to bear fruit without a connection to Him. And it's not like we're not doing good things. It's not like there's not things happening in our lives. But the question is, is it the fruit of the kingdom? The fruit that remains. In Matthew chapter 6, I'll I'll explain it this way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus says this. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Okay? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that for a, a number of years... This is, I, I kind of looked at it as, okay, seek him first, and then all these other things are like second and third and fourth and fifth. So I, that's how I read it. But I've come to realize as I studied scripture that it's not about putting him first above a list of other things. It's about having him in everything. We have our, well, I have my devotions and prayer first in the morning, and then I go about my day. That, that's great. But it's not about just having a time with him. It's about bringing that time everywhere you go throughout the day. You know, we in our culture are very good at opening events with prayer. I mean, we open it with prayer and we we thank God, we do all these things. But then the rest of the event is totally void of kingdom culture. But hey, we prayed first. So we put God first. No, that's not what Jesus is calling us into. Uh, many of us also, I mean, hey, we go to church, first day of the week. We went to church, we, but we live the rest of the week with no thought to how the kingdom ought to shape everything else we do. Seeking his kingdom first, his righteousness first, is a way of life. It's not a list of things to do. It's not an order of events. It's a way to live. Seeking him first should affect every decision that we make. Every decision that we make should be made with kingdom in mind. Every conversation we have should be kingdom language. Every social media post should speak of the kingdom. I'll just tell you now, I'll be really hard on social media today because sometimes it's hard for us to know the difference between Christians and non-Christians just by the words we use on social media. The put-downs, the reminders, the labels, it's just... It's crazy to think that we are in the kingdom, but our social media post doesn't have to be in the kingdom. It needs to be in the kingdom. It needs to affect every part of my lifestyle. I live in the kingdom first, and I live in the kingdom always. Every response, every reaction, every thought, whether it's a a job that I work at a business in town, whether it's some activity that I participate in, every part of my life is kingdom first. So the question of whether or not something is a sin or not is not the only question we need to ask. The question of whether or not it's kingdom culture is another question we need to ask. Whether or not it's something that actually brings me closer to my connection with God or actually brings me farther away from my connection with Him is an important question to ask. Arden brings up a list of these things when he he asks the question in the chapter, what things am I focused on right now and how do they affect my relationship with God? So throughout our lives, we need to ask that question. What am I focused on? How is it affecting my relationship with God? 
And he talks about building relationships and spending time with friends and social media and finishing our education and finding a spouse or finding a significant other, strengthening our marriage, building a family, raising our kids, providing our kids with activities and things, and chasing our dream job and reaching a fitness goal, participating in sports and hobbies. And those things are not bad things. And for the, the church for a long time, developed this false teaching, if you will, that you, when you participate in activities like I just brought up, you know, they actually take you away, away from our connection with God, so we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't go to movies. We, we shouldn't engage in, like, sports, or we shouldn't engage in, in arts. It does, you know, don't waste time being in a play. Don't, don't, do, uh, don't paint. Don't go to museums. Like, we have to be kingdom-focused people. Kingdom-focused is about restoring the people on this earth. It's about celebrating the gift of the arts that God put in people. In fact, in the Old Testament, we're told God gave people these skills to be able to, to make things with jewels and to make things with, with crafts and to, to sew. I mean, that sounds a whole lot like arts. And so it's not the activity that separates us from God. It's whether or not we are intentionally connecting to Him while we participate in the activity. And so we need to learn, how do I do these things, but yet stay connected with Him, because I want to live a life that's lived for His glory. We have not been called into an isolation from the world. On the contrary, we've been called to live right in the center of the world, on display, living a kingdom culture in their lives as well as our own celebrating with them the good things that we see on the earth, working together to establish justice and righteousness on the earth. Christians for a long time wouldn't be involved in civic organizations. You know, we don't have time to be in the Rotary Club or the Lions Club. We don't have time not to. Why not partner with people that are actually already doing good in our our community and help them do the good that needs to be done in our community and all the while show them what kingdom culture looks like in the midst of it. See, Arden brings up uh, this idea. When he first gets saved um, or really recommits his life to the Lord, he stops going to parties because he had been going to parties and it was a problem for him. Uh, He was compromising in so many ways. And then he felt like the Lord wanted him to go back to the parties. And when you hear that, you're like, well, that's dangerous. I mean, if, if I'm a recovering alcoholic, going to a bar is kind of a dangerous thing to do. And so Arden, of course, weighs it. He talks to some people. But then he decides that this is what God wants him to do. But he does it with purpose, and he does it with boundaries. He does it with purpose, and he does it with boundaries. He doesn't just go there to get immersed in the party and immersed in the culture and to just be one of the guys. He goes there with a purpose, to seek and to save that which is lost. That's a great verse, isn't it? Jesus says, Luke 19.10, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Praise God. We're like, that's a great thing. But you remember that that's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a, a sinner, so I don't know who the worst sinner for you right now is in your life, but think of that person. And Jesus decides to go to that person's house when he comes to town and have lunch with them. And it says in verse 6 of Luke chapter 19, I don't have this one on the screen, so you have to look it up later, that the people around Jesus began to grumble. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumble. And in response to that, Zacchaeus gets up and he repents. 
He says, I'm going to give back what I've taken. Uh, he begins to change his entire lifestyle. And Jesus says, praise God, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that was what was lost. See, the, I wish I knew what the conversation at the table was that day. Because that's what we've been called to do. But the church, I find, most of the time is like verse 6. Outside grumbling that we're having, we're compromising. That's what we call it. We're compromising by having dinner with those people. By not addressing the obvious sin in their lives. I don't know if you know this, um, but Jesus dealt with sin. It's totally dealt with. So sin no longer sends people to hell. Not believing in Jesus sends us to hell. Sin is done. Okay, so we don't, if we get someone to stop behaving a certain way, that doesn't mean they get access to heaven. They need to come into the kingdom. They need to surrender, just like we've talked about, totally to the king. Not just try to have some behavior modification so that they are, are better people. Better people go to hell. Moral people go to hell. People who have submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ and have put confidence in his death and resurrection, those are the people that are in the kingdom. And that's our goal. That was Jesus' goal. That's why as a church, we changed our logo to a table. What's that mean? Do we need to be... I don't know what that means, but it means that what Jesus did when he walked the earth is what we need to do as a church. And that may look different in our culture, but we need to be a table, table people that sit with people across the table, have concern for them, engage in their world as a way to show them what the kingdom is like. Ephesians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4 talk to us about the transforming love of God. We, we sang about the love of God today, how powerful it is, how transforming it is. Ephesians 3, listen to this prayer. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Okay, so we're rooted and established in love. We're grasping all of his love, how it's just all of this. And it, even this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, the love of God is actually a weapon in our lives that I think gets underused in the lives of believers. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. When I read Ephesians chapter 4 and what Paul is doing in this verse, I read speaking the truth in love in a sense of speaking truth in a foundation and culture of agape love. Meaning we've already established a culture of love, so therefore I can speak what is true. We tend to think that speaking truth when there's consequences means I love that person. Well, I love that person, so I'm going to tell them something even though they're not going to like it. Okay, but have you prepared them to receive the truth? Well, how do you prepare them to receive the truth? Well, sac self-sacrificing love. In other words, have you done anything to, to put your rights or privileges or self down in order to honor them or help them or serve them or love them so that when you speak the truth, it's received? 
Because what we're trying to do is convince everyone of all of the wrong they've ever done, but there's a veil of deception that covers their eyes. And the scripture teaches us that love, yeah, prayer is a weapon, fasting is a weapon, worship is a weapon, love is a weapon. Love is how we tear down that wall so that we can speak the truth in that culture of love that we've created. I don't know if you've ever heard the statement that people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. Because that's truth. And it's not compromise. It doesn't take long to actually do something to show someone the value that you think they have and to honor them in a way that when you do speak the truth, their hearts can be open to hear it. I'm concerned that in our culture we keep speaking the truth, speaking the truth, speaking the truth, but we're not using love as a weapon to open the hearts of those we're speaking to. And so all we're doing is actually making a lot of noise. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapters 13 and 14 tell us if we don't walk in the way of love, we're just loud. Even if we have all the mysteries, even if we have, you know, we... You can unlock every mystery in the scripture and you can know the times and dates for everything that's about to happen on the earth. But if there's not love, you're just a lot of noise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul does a great job of condensing. I mean, as Americans, we love to condense the story, but anytime we condense the story, something gets left out. But he does a great job of condensing the story. First, verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Christ's love compels us. His love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live, so in other words, those who have come into the kingdom, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Keep in mind, good father, good creator, knows what's best for us, so he can be trusted. If I live for him, he actually does better than I can do. If I want to live my way, it's always going to end in death and regret every single time. And, I mean, we've become masters at taking scriptures out of here and just applying them the way we want to apply them, the way we see things, the way we want to do it. That it doesn't necessarily, just because it comes from this book, doesn't make it true. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. In other words, we don't label people. Every interaction we have with someone should be a clean slate interaction. Oh, Pastor John, how do you do that? Well, through the power of God. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, I mean, what good can come from Nazareth, right? I mean, isn't that Joseph and Mary's son? I mean, Jesus faced the labels too. We now no longer regard him that way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So the moment we put faith in Christ, that's the reality in our lives. The problem is we encounter other people and they say they've put faith in Christ, but we see, oh, it doesn't look like they've put faith in Christ. Well, let's turn those tables and look at us. Well, but I look better than, it doesn't matter. I mean, if we look hard enough, we're going to find something in all of our lives 
that shows we have yet to yield something to the Lord. That doesn't mean we never correct each other. It means we correct each other from that place, not of labeling and put down, but calling each other up. I know this is hard. Like, it's not going to be easy, and, but, man, it's going to be great when we get there. All of this is from God. <laughs> there you go. It's not from us. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. See, God no longer has to count our sin against us. But if we don't put faith in Christ, ugh, that doesn't get applied to our lives. That's why it's important to tell people what Christ has done so we can be in relationship with God, not to live for ourselves, not to just live a better version of what we used to be, but to recognize everything we did before was tainted by sin. And so we've been called to a brand new way of life, a brand new way of thinking, a brand new way of talking, a brand new way. And we walk in that way. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Everything we do in our lives should be opening the door for people to be reconciled to God. Everything. We ought to be praying for them. We ought to be fasting for them. We ought to be worshiping by singing a song. But worship isn't just a slow song. Worship is doing good to those who hate us because we recognize that that hatred is actually a spiritual force that needs to be demolished. And the way we demolish it is by doing good to those who hate us. And we don't want to do that. I don't want to do good to people who hate me. I don't want to bless those who curse me. How will they learn? How did we? Did Jesus come to curse us? No. John 3 says he didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. And if you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you're already condemned for not believing in Jesus. John chapter 3. So you weren't supposed to just stop with John 3.16. We were supposed to keep reading. There's so much more in John chapter 3. But, oh, God so loved us that he gave Jesus for us. Yes, so that we can be called out of that life to live a new life for him. And it's a better life. It's not the better life maybe at first. Sometimes it's hard as we try to put these things into practice because our flesh fights against it. But I promise you, his way is the right way. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul teaches us the same thing. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, His pleasing, and His perfect will. So the application of God's word in our lives, we have to renew our minds. We have to think differently. We have to be transformed, totally different people in what we say, what we do, how we act, in every circumstance, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our friendships, in everything. We're different. And we have to conform to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. In keeping with the whole story, he's telling not just our favorite parts, not just the parts that actually 
kind of help us win that argument. Love, he goes on in the rest of this chapter, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. See, this word love, this word honor, these are spiritual weapons. Well, we We don't just honor people who deserve honor. We honor people because they're made in the image of God. We value people based upon the image of God they're created in. We can not value their actions. We can speak to actions, but we are not very good at just speaking to actions. Because what we do is we avoid people that we don't think is worthy of honor. We don't serve them. We don't love them. We don't sit down and try to have a conversation, a relationship with them, and lead them in truth. We just want to do it from a distance. We just want to do it from our social media posts. But by the way, that's not working. Take it from me. I'm a recovering Facebook junkie. There should be a support group for us, by the way, because it's easy to get sucked back in. Never (laughs) be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope, because nothing can stop the end of the story that's already coming. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Isn't it weird that all of these things are together? Faithful in prayer, what's that doing in there? That doesn't fit this list. Yeah, because hospitality is a weapon. Because doing good to others is a weapon. The same way that prayer is a weapon. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Find a way that we don't both, one of us has to be right, one of us has to be wrong. Or is there a way we can actually live together in harmony? There's always not a right and wrong. And take it, I'm a recovering, always right kind of guy. So take it from me. It doesn't have to be always right. Do not, rep- do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Weapon. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. On contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Now, we, we don't understand that phrase because we think, well, if I'm kind to them, it'll just irritate them even more. I'm putting coals on their head. So we actually do good to people thinking ah, we're getting them because they're going to be even more miserable when I'm nice to them. That's not what he's talking about. In that day and age, you needed to have a fire to keep your, yourself warm, to cook, uh, to have light. Fire was a necessity. If your fire went out, you had to find coals. And most of the time, the only place you could find coals was in the temples. But if you had to get coals from the temples, you had to go there and pay a tribute because if you didn't pay a tribute, you didn't appease the gods. And so the people of God, we found through archaeological finds, the people of God actually would give coals to those whose fires have gone out. Even pagans 
One, it actually met the need of someone that was in need. Two, it kept them from supporting the temples of false gods. And three, it actually showed the people they're not concerned with whether or not they're appeasing the gods or not because those are false gods. So they actually gave them coals of fire. So this isn't about, you know, getting someone with your kindness. This is about opening their hearts to receive the gospel. Overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Serving others, loving others, engaging in their needs actually is a spiritual weapon. But all too often, the church has retreated into our buildings or retreated into our prayer closets or retreated, you know, we, we, you, we get into this, this quiet place and we think that's where we always have to go. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray. I'm not saying we shouldn't fast. I'm not saying we shouldn't have worship services. We need to keep doing those things. But it's like when Jesus met with the Pharisees and they said, you know, you tithe all of these things. You, you tithe everything. You should do that. That's great. But don't neglect these things. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, how you treat other people. See, we, we can get really good at prayer, fasting, going to church, reading the Bible, doing all these things, and yet be a jerk to everyone around us. Because it's justified. Because it's how they're acting. And then we wonder when we share the gospel with them, why it's not received. Well, the world's just going to hell in a handbasket. That's why it's not received. Or maybe it's because there's not a culture of love coming from the church where we've been more concerned about our rights, our privileges, our responsibility, us. Don't tell us when to meet. Don't tell us how to act. Don't, tell, don't try to tax us. Maybe the churches should start paying taxes. Oh. Wow. We should be engaged. We should actually give money to the government. Government doesn't know how to do it. Overcome evil with good. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we live in the world, we should not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and reasonings that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. So our weapons, prayer, fasting, worship, the word of God, love, honor, doing good, demolish arguments and reasonings. But yet how many of us actually use those worldly weapons of arguments and reasonings to try to, to fight battles? And then we wonder why it's not working. We wonder why there's this polarization in our world today. Because the church has chosen to fight with the same weapons the world's fighting with. All throughout history, the church willingly laid down their lives and were even martyred for the faith. And the kingdom of God expanded. In places like China, in Iran, the church is exploding when it's illegal to be a Christian. And in America, we can't seem to get traction. Maybe it's time for us to step, take a step back and refocus. And make sure we're not disoriented lost, trying to live in a kingdom that's more for ourselves than a kingdom that's for him. At the end of the chapter, Arden brings up King Nebuchadnezzar, and King Nebuchadnezzar has an interesting encounter with God. He has a dream, 
And in the dream, God tells him that if he doesn't repent, if he doesn't repent of his wickedness, if he doesn't repent of his mistreatment of people, then God is going to come along and he's going to actually send him out and make him crazy. He's going to go out into the field. Drool is going to come down his beard. He's going to eat grass like a wild animal. He's going to go nuts, insane. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, does not take the dream to heart. And one day he's looking out over his kingdom and he's like, look at what all I have done. And that must have been the final straw. But the great thing about God is, in the dream, he leaves a stump. Because the tree gets cut down, but he leaves a stump saying to Nebuchadnezzar, if you just turn your eyes back to him, just turn your eyes back heavenward, then I will bring you back. And so when Daniel comes to him, and Daniel um, tries to interpret the dream for the king, he tries to appeal to him. And this is what he says in Daniel 4.27. Your majesty... Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. But we know that Daniel's appeal falls on deaf ears. And Arden gives us this great quote in the chapter that is so challenging to me. He says, Nebuchadnezzar goes into a state of absolute confusion. That's what I'm seeing from this generation right now. We've been lost in politics. We've been lost in different media outlets. We've been lost in different campaigns. We've become so lost and we've gotten to the state of utter babble where we are just making a lot of noise and not making a lot of sense. The kingdom is about refocusing on the priorities of heaven for the earth right now. And I know that it's easy for us to look at some of the things in Scripture and to make those our cause. There are a lot of causes. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about campaigns. There's all kinds of campaigns out there. We, you know, we, we want to stop abortion. We want to we you know, have justice for all people groups. And we, I mean, we, we have all these causes. And it's not that they're wrong. It's just we throw all of our eggs in this one basket. We're going to throw all of our stuff right here. And then we're dishonoring the people that are right in front of us. It's time for us, like Nebuchadnezzar, I think, to turn our eyes to heaven. I want to read one last scripture. King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of his crazy spell, (laughs) at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. If there's one thing I could challenge us today to do, is to do just this. Just raise our eyes toward heaven so that our sanity can be restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and I glorified Him who lives forever. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. Remember, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and then all these things will be added to you. Pursue those other things, you'll never get them. They won't last. You'll have to fight to keep them. But if you do it his way, honor him first, then all these things can be added. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God isn't calling Nebuchadnezzar to just have a a worship service here. He's not just saying, okay, now lift your voice and sing a song to me. 
Um, if Nebuchadnezzar doesn't actually change his ways, that's also worship. Then he's going to be right back in the same boat he was in before. But the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's life is different. The rest of Nebuchadnezzar's life has changed. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to pass that on to his son, to that next generation. But when we understand what happens here, when we turn our eyes to heaven, when we acknowledge in humility and dependency that we need to be more connected to him, more engaged with the world around us so that they see him, that's how we gain our focus. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes. And I want us to take just a few moments and ask ourselves how to apply this. Some of us have been in church all of our lives. We've said the sinner's prayer. We've, you know, asked God to forgive our sins. You know, we're trying our best to apply the scripture to our lives. But what I want us to ask right now in this moment is, is God the full focus of our lives? Is he the full focus of our lives? Or have we settled for some level of compartmentalized Christianity? Have we settled for just focusing on one aspect and not the whole aspect? Are there distractions that need to be abandoned? Are there distractions that maybe need to be reordered in our lives? Are we living on purpose, intentionally, in every choice, in every action, putting Him on display? Have we turned from the life we used to live to the life he's calling us to? Or have we just altered course enough, added enough morality, changed a few things? Or have we recognized this is a call to totally repent, to turn, to focus, kingdom everything from this moment on? And then reality, that's the challenge for us today. That's the challenge for each and every one of us to consider And to do, Jesus, every time he encountered someone that wanted to know, hey, how do I have eternal life? Jesus never minced words with them. Jesus always told them it's total surrender. It's a total new way of living. And he always had a way of pinpointing that one thing that we wanted to hold on to. So it doesn't really matter how many things we've applied to our lives. The question today is, what are you holding on to? What are you holding back? What troubles me more in the American church than anything else is the level of unforgiveness and bitterness that exists in the church. When Jesus' words are really clear, that if we will not forgive our brother, we won't be forgiven. And I know that it takes time to deal with pain and emotion and hurt, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the refusal to engage in that process. Continuously rehearsing those hurts in our minds. But yet, because there's a whole list of good things, eh, hopefully it's outweighing the bad. That's not how the kingdom works. Don't settle for anything less than everything. This message has a tendency to come across in a negative way, in an overbearing way, in a burdensome way. But God's commands are not burdensome. 
What we need to do is connect to Him. Stay connected to Him. Look for Him, not just first in the morning in our devotion time, but all day. Before we respond, when someone says, hey, can you do something? Before we give our yes or no to something, maybe it's to look to Him and say, what should I do here? What's the kingdom want me to do? Because sometimes we give our yes to stuff because we feel guilty, but in reality, the kingdom would give its no. And sometimes we give our no to stuff because we're being selfish when the kingdom's calling us to say yes. So, Father, we just recognize today we need you in a desperate way. God, many of us today are just, we're lost. We're disoriented. We don't know what to do. There's so much confusion. There's so much chaos. There's so much animosity and anger and frustration in our world right now, God, and it's creeped into the church. It's creeped into our language. It's creeped into our relationships. It's creeped into what we're doing. God, we repent. This has no place in our lives. This is not how you treated us. God, we recognize we need to connect with you in a way that allows what you have done for us to come out of every part of our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, in this week ahead, show us how to do this. Show us how to stay connected to you throughout our day. Show us how to wrestle with every decision and every conversation and every activity in a way that puts your kingdom first, foremost, in everything. Make us a focused people, not a lost one. Holy Spirit, help us to focus on you and find ourselves in your love. Help us to be those people that bear much fruit so that those that are encountering us on a daily basis can eat of that fruit, can encounter your love, can be transformed in the same way that you've transformed us. And so, Holy Spirit, help us to apply the things that we read, the things that we've heard. Help us to put them into practice as we walk out these doors today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for your patience.